In healthcare, there are many transformative leaders. The most remarkable leaders don't just dare greatly to drive improvements, they also care greatly. They bring compassion and humanity to the work of leading transformation. This is their podcast. In today's episode, I talk with Dr. Lou Hart, Director of Equity, Quality, and Safety at New York City Health and Hospitals, the largest public health system in the United States. The system serves more than 1 million New Yorkers every year across 70 care locations in all five boroughs of the city. Dr. Hart and I connected around his approach to integrating equity into core quality and safety work. In this episode, we talk about why that's so important, and we delve into some of the specific approaches he and the organization are following to make that a reality, including a newly revamped root cause analysis process with an equity lens. Dr. Hart is a leader who cares greatly. Welcome, Dr. Hart, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So you are at New York City Health and Hospitals, which is incredibly diverse in terms of staff and leadership, as well as the patients and families you serve. What are the challenges and opportunities around diversity, equity, and inclusion in that kind of an environment? I think that's a great question to get us started. You know, as a safety net system here in New York City at uh, New York City Health and Hospitals, we really have the great opportunity to serve people who otherwise might not be able to access care, Uh, especially in regards to insurance status, documentation status, income levels, education, race, sexual orientation, and gender identity. We really have a nice uh, crossroads where those really all come into one and they all kind of fork into one at our health system. It uh, really is such a privilege. Being, it's really probably the best mission I think anybody can sign up for is finding these, you know, having these populations that are often so vulnerable um, and so uh, potentially underlooked by our capitalistic structures and traditional healthcare models, and really being able to deliver, you know, top-notch A-plus healthcare really allows us to uh, truly live out our mission and 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 really have rewarding work. Uh, at New York City Health and Hospitals, around. Not even less than 9% of our patient population self-identifies as white, non-Hispanic, um, and up to 40% of New York City residents were born abroad. Um, and many of those, you know, those, that's the population that we're taking care of here. Mm-hmm. So a, ver- a very uh, re- religiously, culturally, ethnically diverse population, um, and one that speaks many different languages, uh, most often in my practice. Uh, rarely am I speaking English as the first language for most of my patients. So it really is a, a, a wonderful opportunity that we have, uh, but it does create some, some uh, you know, potentially some vulnerabilities and some opportunities for us to improve our care. Um, I really think one of the biggest options and one of the biggest struggles that we've always had with is how do we get these patients into, into our care, into primary mm-hmm. care, um, stop coming through our emergency departments as our only access point for care, but really develop those longitudinal relationships with our primary caregivers so that we can have more than just a 15 minute visit. And, and, and that's, that's our only experience of the healthcare system for a year until you come into the emergency department, how we can be more preventative with our care. I think that's really where the, the opportunity lies. And we were really so fortunate. We just recently launched a program called NYC Care. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's, an oper- it's, a, it's a care access program that guarantees low cost and no cost health insurance, or I should say service to New Yorkers who don't qualify or can't afford for health insurance. Um, it's the largest and most comprehensive initiative in the country to guarantee uh, health care for all New Yorkers, regardless of immigration status or ability to pay. And what that really is, is that we realize there's this kind of, you know, there's this gap of where Medicaid expansion stops. You make, a, you know, you don't make, 
you make too much money for Medicaid, but you don't make enough, but you're not poor enough to, uh, you know, you're not low income enough to qualify for Medicaid uh, services. So it's, there's this huge gap. And then that extends even further to those who are here undocumented or who um, potentially are undomiciled, just have no means of, you know, even producing tax returns. So it really expands New York uh, access to care probably around, I think we, when we last tabulated it with the city of New York and the mayor's office, it was around 500,000 New Yorkers would be eligible for this program. So really That's an great. amazing opportunity to bring people in, give them a card, my NYC care card, to really make them feel a part of a system and kind of start to build that relationship. And that relationship is really important. I want to drill a little bit deeper into what can still be challenging in that, though, so, because um, I have I've been to some meetings of some senior leadership at New York City Health and Hospitals. And again, it's an incredibly diverse uh, group of people, with, which is great. That's one of the challenges we see in so many other healthcare organizations. And yet I spoke to the president of one of the hospitals within the system who was pushing back on some of the um, some of the guidance we were trying to give around connecting with patients and having conversations. Um, and she mentioned that patients still perceived often uh, a class gap between herself and other leaders and even some of the physicians and the patients themselves. So I just wanna bring up and, and make people aware that even in a very diverse system of leaders and, and caregivers and in a system that is serving this diverse group of patients, there can still be some of these disconnects. So this push around diversity, equity, and inclusion is still really important. Am I on track with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that's a hundred percent. I definitely agree that that can absolutely be an issue from the patient's perception. Um, and I think this is probably a universal issue for all health systems mm. is not only how to increase the representation of underrepresented people at the C-suite level, but even more importantly, on the front line of care delivery. So that, yeah. you know, the, that kind of customer service relationship, patient, physician, patient, caregiver relationship is with someone that you feel might even come from your community. And I think that's something that we're really fortunate at health and hospitals is that many of our frontline workers were born in the hospitals that they work in currently, are from the communities, parts of Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, uh, Manhattan, Staten Island that they grew up in, you know, so this was their community hospital and mm. now they deliver care there. So that can help bridge some of that issue. But there's absolutely for many historical um, and cultural reasons, uh, political potentially, that do create that chasm, that divide, that, that the healthcare system is, 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 is the other. And that, you know, mm -hmm. the, four, the four white walls of the hospital are just, uh, you know, they might be, they might not have my best intentions. Um, and, you know, and some of those, uh, some of those are valid historically. I mean, we know about what's happened in our country to different populations in terms of, you know, healthcare experimentation or, mm -hmm. you know, trialing on different patient populations, whether those with disabilities or those from different racial backgrounds. So there's definitely a, a, a real historical context, uh, but we're definitely trying to break that down by, by showing the faces of our communities on the front lines. Uh, but it's definitely something we're actively working on and definitely something that if, if we get better at, we'll only create a more welcoming and inclusive atmosphere. Absolutely. And, and again, I think you guys have uh, a, a pretty phenomenally diverse group, which is, which is an, a critical starting point. I want to look at your role specifically. Um, you're the Director of Equity, Quality, and Safety at New York City Health and Hospitals. Why did you choose to align diversity or equity with quality and safety? Often those are, are separate roles. Yeah, so, so 
It's actually, you know, I was recently at a conference last December where I was learning about, you know, some of these pursuing health equity initiatives, pursuing institutional equity initiatives for health systems. Um, and I met a very prominent physician who's a close friend of mine and mentor. Um, and he was the director of quality, safety, and equity. Um, and I, it really stuck with me that how you could actually utilize, you know, existing quality and safety infrastructures um, and potentially apply what I will describe in a, in a little bit as an equity lens. Um, but with really what he explained to me was that, you know, equity and quality are fundamentally linked. You know, you cannot have a high quality system that produces disparate outcomes. It wouldn't be a high quality system for all. Unless the system is designed to really disadvantage certain groups or have inequitable outcomes, then potentially you could say that's a high quality system because it repeats <laughs> the same inequitable results. But I don't think those are the high quality systems that any of us are striving for. Right. So, you know, having disparities, no matter how good the top end does, still is, in, is not a high quality system. So I think by, you know, looking at those who are most disparately affected or those who are at the, you know, the lowest rung of the totem pole, if you can bring their quality of care up, undoubtedly, you know, a, a rising tide will lift all boats. Undoubtedly, if you can, the most vulnerable patients are having excellent experiences through your healthcare system, everyone's going to benefit from the interventions that you had to, you know, that you had to implement to help those most vulnerable people. So when you kind of want to, when, you know, the way he was phrasing it, when you look at it like that, then you really realize that they are fundamentally linked and they need to be addressed in such with, with, with the same rigor. Uh, you know, don't just have equity and diversity come from solely the HR department or solely an extraneous, um, potentially non-traditional clinical approach, but infuse it or ingrain it into the existing infrastructures of what people are doing already, the things that are ingrained into a healthcare system. And we'll get to that in a little bit, but it's something that I term the equity lens. Um, and by applying this kind of, you know, equity lens into your current work streams, it allows people to continue the work that they're doing every day, but adding a little bit of a tweak on. So it's not additional burdensome work, but it's just asking an additional question or looking at it from a, from a different viewpoint or stratifying the data a little bit differently. Continue what you're doing, but let's also tackle some of these equity issues in our current day work. Um, and some examples that we, that, you know, where we potentially implemented this are in the fields of performance improvement teams. Like I talked about, we're trying to collect high fidelity real SOGI data so that that can be stratified uh, and allow us to see, you know, if we're doing a colonoscopy performance improvement project. Let's make sure all social groups are doing well, not just as mm -hmm. an average or as a mean we're doing well, but that men, women, uh, different religious uh, uh, affiliations, people from different ethnic backgrounds are having the same benefit to that performance improvement project. People in the fields of risk and patient safety, um, working on bias related concerns, either through how it's reported through our incident reporting system or how we use the RCA process to really delve into that. Um, looking at data analytics and really we have our data analytics team within our office of quality to have that kind of robust data infrastructure to be able to uh, hold ourselves accountable to transparent high fidelity data and make sure that it's, val you know, that's validated and audited frequently to ensure that people feel comfortable with it. Um, and all the way to our patient experience team for how we can potentially, uh, you know, involve alternate reporting systems for grievances, whether that's from staff, whether that's from patients, and then be able to look into more of the details that we'll capture with the demographic data to see if there's any, any trends that are happening in our measurement. So I think it really it does allow me to potentially take something that I'm passionate about in equity uh, for patients um, and now more recently for institutions um, mm -hmm. and, and use the existing bread and butter infrastructures that are 50, 100 years old in healthcare, and probably not old enough, unfortunately, in terms of quality safety, <laughs> uh, but things that are top of mind for you know, every C-suite uh, leader in a healthcare system 
and really use those same already established, well-funded infrastructures and apply my equity lens. I think that's so powerful. I think it's, there's such a tendency when we introduce, and, and equity is not an entirely new concept, but it's certainly getting a lot more attention. When we put more attention on things in, in healthcare, we often create new silos and that creates redundant infrastructure. So I love that A, you're building on the existing science, B, you're, you're reducing the cognitive burden on team members who are having to um, you know, look at these things through different lenses. Um, and you're, you're taking advantage of systems that are already funded, that already have leaders instead of creating something that's, um, that's wholly separate. So I think that's really powerful. And we talked about this in advance. I, I want to drill into what you're trying to do in, in the current process of expanding the concept of root cause analysis to include aspects of equity. Can you describe what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So we're really excited about uh, a couple new things. We're trying to revamp our RCA process, and this is an ongoing work uh, to kind of standardize the RCA across our sites. Um, since we have 11 different hospitals, over 70 clinics, we have correctional health, which takes care of our, uh, uh, a, a few of the city uh, jails, as well as community care and five skilled nursing homes. So it's a large system. Um, and, you know, currently when things are done at a, on the personal level with different risk managers, some of the RCAs are conducted a little differently. And we welcome some of that diversity in terms of, you know, the context of the case and the context of that facility, but we're trying to standardize that a fall at one hospital would be the RCA the same as a fall at another hospital. Things mm -hmm. are prioritized the same way. So in that standardization process, it allows us to potentially look at what are the questions that we want to have standardly asked across our system. Um, and that's where I really was able to partner with our, our leader, of risk, uh, our director of risk management, and go into potentially, can we create a crib sheet or a tip sheet, a tool guy, you know, a tool uh, a, a kit that can guide the RCA investigator, the risk manager, through the process in terms of potentially offer some prompts for questions that need to be addressed. So it's a two-pronged approach, one through a new uh, incident reporting system that will be integrated into our EMR. How can we leverage that to potentially alert those risk investigators of potential bias or equity concerns that they should uh, look further into in their investigation, but also using that RCA process to kind of standardize what those investigatory questions look like. So currently we, in that tip sheet, we've added uh, an equity standalone question. Um, and so if a, if obviously through, uh, if it's incident, if it's reported through the incident reporting system, then, and there's an equity kind of trigger, which I'll get to in a little bit explaining how that works. But if a potential question triggers positive for bias or concern for bias, then they could really delve down into this question and assess it at these four different levels. So the four levels that we really are trying to look at potential bias or inequities are at the interpersonal level, which I think people are familiar with more in the explicit bias, which again, we hope to never find. Um, and that's really right. at the personal level. Uh, you can think of examples of racism, classism, sexism, ableism, really that kind of personal prejudice, uh, which we know exists, but we, we hope to not you know, see it reflected throughout the system or see it reflected too many, in too many trends, but we know it's possible for it to exist and definitely needs to be determined if that was a potential uh, contributing uh, cause. We also look at it through the human behavioral level, which is more of that, what I think people are starting to get a better understanding of is implicit bias, mm -hmm. um, whether that's around the you know, concepts of anchoring, confirmation bias, availability bias, which are mm -hmm. those, you know, if you, you've seen it once or it recently happened to you, it's more head of mind. If you were recently in a hurricane, you're never really gonna worry about a, 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 a tornado. The only thing that's gonna be on your mind is hurricanes, even though you now have moved to a tornado alley. Like it's really just the way the brain <laughs> right. 
it's the way the brain works. It tries to remember things that are more top of mind and really project those onto. So if you've had a bad experience with a potential religious or ethnic group, even the next person you meet, you might continue to hold that bias. And it's part of a human evolution. It's part of how the brain works, but it's really not appropriate. You should probably look at this person through, through a, a unique lens and treat them in the context that you're meeting them and not really pull over or anchor on what you learned last time and really uh, you know, put that or portray that or project that onto your next encounter. Uh, the third level that we look at it is through institutional level, is the institutional level, and those are the policies and practices we have in place. Um, did we not have the right language access program? Was the phone broken? Was the phone mm. uh, line taking too long to connect to that person's uh, preferred language? Um, you know, or were there any resource scarcities? You know, we are a safety net system, and you know, we 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 do very well with what we have, um, but obviously, compared to funding sources of other health systems, it's a little different. So we have to be very creative. So if it's three in the morning and there's no ultrasound tech on, how were you able to you know, get to the bottom of that case? How are you able to work up that patient? Would it have been easier if you had an ultrasound tech on 24 seven? Mm -hmm. um, things like delays and coordination of care and staffing ratios, uh, those are all institutional level issues that we can look at to say, are we actually driving some of these inequitable outcomes? And then the fourth is something that I think a lot of people are familiar with now, more the structural level or the societal determinants of health. You know, how did someone's chronic poverty play into their outcome? How did their chronic homelessness or potential, you know, healthy food insecurity, having mm -hmm. poor access to care or low health literacy, how did all those things play into the outcome? Because I think it's easy just to say, oh, someone fell because the lights were off. But like, were they not, be, were they not able to speak their preferred language to alert the nurse or PCA that they needed to get out of bed? Were mm -hmm. we, did we have a policy in place that didn't allow routine toileting? You know, certain things like that, that might have inequitably impacted people we we have a great i feel most health systems have great intentions and want great results but you know the great in, the great intention when you look at the outcome and you see a disparate outcome or an, an, an inequitable outcome it's a bad program no matter how good the intention so right. how we always investigate that look into that and shore that up i think really helps us get to the bottom of some of these contributing factors and that's i think that's really critical and and i like the way that you've broken that down because i think most people think of it more on the explicit and implicit bias, as opposed to looking at some of those institutional and structural components um, that are either enabling or disabling some of those um, interpersonal factors, which I think is really important in terms of looking at systemic responsibility. Um, I wanna drill into that a little bit further because you and I talked hypothetically um, about a possible future state in which the approach would include data gathering about race, ethnicity, age, gender, uh, social determinants of health, et cetera, of all of the people involved in an incident, both on the, the team care team side um, and on the patient family side, if that incident required a, an RCA. And the idea would be that you'd be able to look for trends in the data that might uncover situations of systemic uh, or unconscious bias that are harder to uncover, harder to see if you don't see that from the data perspective. Um, and I'm, I'm gonna let you drill into the challenges here because there are many, but what would be the pros and the cons of that approach? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's such an interesting concept and definitely one that we continue to explore. Uh, there, it's definitely something that is, that is, there are ample pros and cons to taking such an approach and how you balance those and how you weigh those out into the end will have to be very carefully done and, and well communicated. But, you know, I definitely see the benefits in terms of, transparency and measurement of trends over time. You know, mm -hmm. I think in if, as healthcare continues to lean uh, on data and analytics and they'll continue to play a more important role in making kind of data informed decisions, 
I think having robust high fidelity data that's collected well, that's validated, uh, that that's real, um, and that can be reported out and, uh, and and something that can be you know made to hold accountable is important. And I think yeah. that if you are, if you if there is something that's out there to be measured, you should measure it uh, because how will you know what's happening unless you're measuring it? It's it's easy to not look at something and say, oh, everything's great. Right. Well, may, you know, potentially we just aren't looking in the right places. So I definitely see the benefit in terms of, well, if something's happening, we should track it. But my, you know, there are definitely, there's other parts of me that get a little concerned where I think of like an Orwellian future where Big Brother is watching <laughs> right. everything and we don't know what Big Brother is doing with this data and are they right. going to personally attack me? If Are they going to use this data against me? Um, yeah. You know, there, so it has to be well communicated. It has to be kind of like that uh, as we, as we use our, uh, risk as I sorry our just cultural algorithm and as we kind of try to create that psychological safety within right. an organization if you don't have that first created and you try to roll something like this out it's going to burn in your face because people Absolutely. are not going to want to report things people are just going to want to you know mums the word hush is better the quietest hospital is the best hospital it's probably not true <laughs> probably the, the hospitals that are reporting the most amount of incidents or you know good catches or near harms that's probably the best hospital because that's one that has a proactive sense of safety and risk as opposed right. to one that just tries to kind of rub these under the under the rug so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting and not very many health systems are doing it this way. Uh, it's, it's not well reported in the literature um, from my conversations with leaders throughout. It's something that can be done. And it's something that I think we're going to continue to explore because I think there is value in having, in, in, in not only having the data, but in, in creating the culture where people aren't afraid that this type of data is collected. Uh, right. And, you know, it's, it's, what we will do with it, I don't think I have the answer for that yet, because <laughs> if you did notice trends of one provider really always has an issue with this language or this gender of patient or, or this, uh, you know, ethnic, cultural, or racial background of a patient, and you notice it happens over time, it's the same thing, like, maybe that is something that's more on that, you know, on those first two levels of the implicit bias or the explicit bias, and that's something that can be more tailored to that individual versus something that's really systemic. It's this unit that has that issue. But right. it's all the, the, this unit, oh, it's probably because we have poor Wi-Fi access and they can't get onto the Marty interpreter mm. phone. You know, so I, I think it will help do more good than harm. But I think it's something that has to be well thought out and something that we have to make sure it's communicated and that we've really uh, you know, created that psychological safety where people trust their managers, trust leadership, know that we're all out just for the benefit of our patients and really hold each other accountable for that. Yeah, I think that's that's so critical because any any way that this data gets used in a punitive fashion, even for that clinician, the, the hypothetical clinician you described, who's having those challenges of implicit or explicit bias, um, as soon as it's used punitively, as opposed to in a in a how do we advance things, how do we get things better, how do we improve in ways that are fair and equitable on both sides of the equation, meaning patient families and physicians and staff, then um, it's it just becomes one more potential, you know, to quote Audre Lorde, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. It becomes one more tool of um, potentially uh, ingraining some of the inequities that exist. So, no, um, so true. interesting to think about, but as you said, fraught with real considerations that have to do with things that are complicated like culture and psychological safety. Uh, but I'm glad that people like you are out there thinking about it and looking at, you know, could we do this and what could we learn and, uh, and how would we move it forward? So thank you for thinking outside the box. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and one thing also just to add, you know, to the concept of we're only as good as our weakest link. So how you kind of create, how you, how you frame that, how you in a non-accusatory, non-punitive fashion, just say, hey, as a system, we're only as good as all of our parts. So we have to make sure all of our parts are, are kind of operating within the cultural mission that we have here. I mean, I think that same way can be the converse of that can happen to the patients. If you notice that certain providers really, the patients are the ones who are potentially being biased and they're, mm -hmm. they're putting their bias onto the providers, you know, some, whether that's ageism or genderism or racism that's being reflected from the patient and how we can hold our patients accountable by saying like, hey, here at, at our health system, that type of behavior is not warranted and it's not, the, it's not part of the healing milieu that we're creating. So you need right. to work with us and not just ask for a different provider, different nurse, different doctor, but work with us to kind of unroot these things. And it's not only directed at, you know, staff education, but sometimes it's patient education and for other systems that potentially have uh, a different patient population mix or a different, uh, you know, case mix, that might be a bigger issue that it's actually patient on staff. So how you can utilize this approach to really delve into that and, and, and identify that. Whereas if you weren't tracking it, you would have no idea. Right. Right. Yeah. And I wish we had all the time in the world for this podcast because I'd love to dig into that question of, of patient bias because that, um, that is also a complicated factor. But let's hold that for a, a future discussion, um, which I'm sure we will be having. So, <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so as you look ahead, uh, just, you know, whether it's just to the, you know, the horizon, I feel like all horizons have gotten a little blurrier with COVID-19. But as you look ahead to the the future. What's your vision for the future of healthcare? So another great question. I think healthcare through many different factors, many different key drivers will undoubtedly be fundamentally uprooted and changed over the next 50 years. Uh, I think we've seen a lot of that through even what's happened with the COVID-19 pandemic and people's work styles, work from home becoming the normal, you know, remote, remote work becoming the norm uh, in terms of how we can utilize technology, broadband internet, how, how we do things will fundamentally change, I think, because of what we've all seen. And that was probably something that was happening over these next 50, you know, over the next 10 years anyways, but it's definitely been sped up. So I think healthcare will be much more integrated into daily life. I think through, and I'm a former employee of Apple, so I was very into health technology earlier in my career. I think there will be, no, no bias to Apple, but I think there will definitely be <laughs> I think there will definitely be um, the way we wear, you know, wear technology and how we kind of bridge, we break down the four walls of the hospital and really meet patients where they are. And that's in their homes, in their communities, mm -hmm. as opposed to expecting them to come to us when they're sick and us to really more, you know, treat reactively illness, we should be proactively pursuing wellness. And by the time they're in the hospital, it's probably too late because unless they're there for their primary care visit, by the time they're in the ED or they're in the hospital, it's too late. We've missed the opportunity, the, 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 the leading indicators. We're now looking at the lagging indicators or the lagging outcomes. So I think there's an opportunity for us to be more proactive in, in, in preventative medicine, um, as opposed to asking people to trek over to the hospital. And especially if someone who's potentially from a low income group who has to work through two or three jobs to support their family, who does not have their own transportation, so must take mass transit to get to you, that's a lot to ask that person to maybe take time off of work to come during your clinic hours to get their blood pressure checked. Like that seems right. a little unreasonable and not everybody has the means to buy a blood pressure machine and not every system can afford to buy all their patients these. Um, so what would be the potential means to bridge that gap? And I think through the use of telehealth, 
through the expanded use of community care workers and actually people making home visits. It's almost like we're going to go back 100 years to how it was at the turn of the century with the doctor making the house call. I think, you know, when someone leaves the hospital, they're discharged from the hospital, there's this big concern, oh, we got to get them back. You know, there's, there's quality metrics and there's get them back for a follow-up visit, or whether that's from behavioral health or from the hospital, to potentially hopefully avoid a readmission. But if you can do that in the comfort of their own home, now you're, you know, a couple of days out, someone gives you a call. Hey, how are things going? How do you feel? Are you having any post-op potential concerns? No, I'm feeling good. All right, we'll call you in a week. You know, how, how's your mobility? Have you been getting up? Have you had your first PT visit? Things like that to be more proactive as opposed to waiting what happens. Oh, they missed their appointment. Now it's a month later. And it's like, well, right. no wonder they got readmitted. No one really followed up with them. So obviously all that costs money. So you're hoping that with the upfront dollars you're spending that you'll realize net savings because I understand mm -hmm. that there are finances to healthcare. So I believe it'll become more ingrained into daily life where people will have potential technology in their homes that can, potent, that can alert their provider of issues. If the glucometer is always reading above, that should just get thrown over to the doctor, the nurse practitioner, and they should be able to see my patient's glucoses are really uncontrolled when they log into their EMR. Maybe I should you know, have, the, have the nurse or have the diabetic educator give them, a converse, give them a call to go over and review their medications. Maybe we need to bring them in earlier as opposed to waiting. Uh, so I think that's going to be a huge uh, shift in healthcare. Uh, and that kind of goes along to the ideas of high value care. Right now, the way our healthcare system is funded, you know, a lot of it is still fee for service. So there's a perverse incentive to do potentially unnecessary procedures that might not benefit the patient long term, but are very financially rewarding for the health system. Um, and I think there's still a, a lack of trust between patients saying that my doctor has my best interest as opposed to like my doctor has the best interest of the health system or of mm -hmm. his or her bottom line. So I think as we can create more of, uh, of a focus on high value care, staying away from low benefit treatments that actually might cause more harm than good um, and definitely have real costs to the healthcare system and switching more towards, you know, you're probably better off buying someone, paying for someone, uh, a physical trainer or in a gym membership than you are just, uh, you know, than you are putting them on 18 different diabetes medications uh, yeah. in terms of all the complications that might arise. So I think just the way we refocus and realign where we'll spend our dollars will be very important. And then lastly, I think just as the nation's demographic shift, you know, there will continue to be a financial imperative to build more equitable systems. I was reading, I think it was a Pew uh, research study that, or poll that showed, it must have a study, that showed 51% of the United States population under 18 comes from an underrepresented background or maybe a non-white uh, racial mm -hmm. group, which just kind of goes to show you as our country shifts in demographics, the old ways we used to do things might not, might probably should not continue, but might not continue to benefit a good amount of people the same way it has in the past. And, and, right. and we might have to deliver more of this kind of personalized, tailored care not focusing on big labels or buckets and treating all groups the same, but really identifying whether that's through how we're going to, how technology will change, how our understanding of the genome will change, but really treating each patient like a unique individual and not treating all diabetics the same, all asthmatics the same, but treating every patient like a patient and developing that personalized relationship. So I think those are definitely the ways that I see healthcare shifting. My potential concerns for how healthcare could shift is that if we become too dependent on data and analytics, um, we can potentially uh, not realize that some of the algorithms we've created have bias included in them. And right. one that I was recently reading about was a referral program that the health system was using to care management. And they were triggering referrals based on what was a good intention, the amount of healthcare dollars spent. So obviously if someone's really, if someone's sicker and they keep coming into the health system, then they're going to have more healthcare spend and they should get triggered for care management referral. And the idea was that the sickest patients should get the referrals. 
But the issue that when they uncovered and when they kind of stratified the data, they realized, oh, certain racial groups just use the system less. They're actually right. sicker, but because they have this distrust or they have so many structural barriers that don't allow them to come to the hospital as much, they actually look by this algorithm healthier. So they're, right. when they literally stratified it by race, they saw white patients were getting referred at much higher rate than black patients. And it was actually worsening the inequities in terms of the hypertension control and some of the key things they were looking at. And again, a great intention, but a bad outcome. So something that we need to always be examining, like making sure that we're not just, uh, that when we you know, implement a new project, that we're actually not just trying to sustain that, but we're actually making sure that all the balancing outcomes, balancing measures are being looked into and that we are making things more equitable in our high quality systems. That is quite a vision for the future. And I, I appreciate that we've talked a lot in this about data and transparency and that just then in that last comment, you, you sort of brought up a, a meta level of, of data and analysis because the more we rely on, on data and algorithms and sort of things that happen behind the scenes to generate, which we have to, right? That we can't as human beings grok all of the data that is, is flying at us. But if we're not also analyzing the the algorithms and the, the tools that are um, making decisions or organizing that data in a way that explicitly looks at uh, bias and equity, um, then as you said, we can perpetuate those systems. So I think that's, that's so, so important um, and such a, a complicated, but I think you paint a very hopeful picture for the future. And I really hope that is where we're headed. And I'm grateful that someone like you is out there on the forefront of this pushing to make sure it happens. As a, as a consummate optimist, I am always happy to serve and really feel so privileged and honored to have the, you know, to have had the abilities and to have had, you know, the parents who pushed me into and, the, and supported me, really took a village uh, through all of my training uh, in my career to really be able to have these opportunities to, to give back and to serve the patients in New York City um, and really the you know the country as we try to improve our healthcare system, we spend the most of any of any developed of any nation on healthcare. But yet we have, you know, the, by depending what rank and what methodology you use, the, somewhere in the mid 30s in terms of a healthcare system in terms of the outcomes that we produce. So if every system produces the outcomes that it was meant to produce, our system isn't really designed the way it should be. So right. as we look into how things will continue to change and continue to improve, I just think there's so we're spending so much money. There's so much opportunity for us. That there's a lot of low hanging fruit. So uh, not only do I feel an immense amount of job security because there's so much to change, <laughs> but uh, I, I hope to, I hope to render myself obsolete so I can, uh, you know, get back to the golf course one day, but until then I'm very, I'm eager and I'm happy. I'm happy to, I'm fortunate to be in the position uh, that I have right now. Well, I certainly hope you are able to get out to the golf course, even as you are working on this change, because rest and recovery is definitely important. But I'm also very, very grateful that you are sharing um, even some of these things that you're still thinking about that are still in process uh, so that others may learn and, and, um, and build those systems of the future with diversity, equity, and inclusion in mind. So thank you, Dr. Hart, so much for sharing your insights. Thank you so much. It was really my pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of the Caring Greatly podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. For links to resources related to Dr. Hart's discussion, visit vocera.com slash podcast and click on his episode. This is Liz Bohm, Executive Strategist for Human-Centered Research at the Experience Innovation Network, part of Vocera. Thank you for caring greatly. Thank you.